Hello and welcome to Extrapolator, Season 2. I am very excited to be here today launching the first episode of the new season. And it's been nine months since I last released an episode, back in November 2020. And although the airwaves have been quiet, I in fact have been busy recording interviews with philosophers, scientists, entrepreneurs, public intellectuals, all sorts of interesting and insightful guests. So I'm excited for you to hear these interviews in the coming weeks. Now, going forward, the format of the podcast will be different. You might have noticed that season one followed a kind of a solo format. It was almost a popular audiobook with eight chapters, eight episodes, and I tried to tie them together. I signposted future topics. I tried to make a nice arc across the whole season, but it kind of came out as, a, as an audiobook because I was just doing it by myself. Now, the purpose of this was just to establish a platform so I could in the future approach guests for interviews. And the solo format was much more time consuming. I mean, interviewing is time consuming in its own way, but the way I approached it, you know, writing scripts, editing, filling the entire episode of audio with only my voice, it is a much more time consuming format. So it was really done with the aim of moving to an interview model in the near future. Now we are at season two, and I'm excited to be moving to an interview format. Now that I have a platform and I have some credibility for inviting guests, I will be speaking to different people every week. And I'm delighted that so many interesting people have already agreed to speak with me. Today, I'm starting with one of my favorite interviews. It was actually the first interview I ever recorded before I ever recorded any of the episodes in season one. So that's a confession about how old this conversation is. But it was a wonderful conversation and I didn't have a place for it at the time. So I kept it in the archives. I knew that one day it would have a place and happily that day has arrived. So today I'm speaking with Elan Goodman. Elan is a podcaster, producer and communicator of science. He works as a producer for several science-focused podcasts, including Crowd Science from the BBC World Service, The Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry from BBC Radio 4, and Azim Hazar's Exponential View. Ilan is the creator, host and producer of his own podcast called Nous, which explores questions about the mind through philosophy, psychology and neuroscience. Ilan is also an actor and he's appeared extensively on stage, in TV shows and in feature films. Ilan holds an MSc in History and Philosophy of Science from UCL and as you'll hear, this common ground formed the basis for much of our conversation. Elan and I mostly speak about the intersection of philosophy and science. We discuss philosophy and neuroscience, philosophy as a mapping exercise, scientific realism and mind-independent truths, the distinctions between philosophy and science, causality at the level of quantum particles, communicating science to the public, the motivations for podcasting, the current state of intellectual discourse, the challenges of communicating coronavirus information to the public, and other topics. Elan has a wonderful voice. As you'll hear, he is an actor and a seasoned podcaster, and I think that really comes across. And he speaks with great insight about the intersection of philosophy and science, and about the functions and value of philosophical work. And it was truly a joy to record this conversation. It was the best debut I could have hoped for as a podcaster. And it in fact gave me false confidence because it was easier and smoother by far than the average interview that you might expect as a podcaster. 
And as regards the timeline, we did record this in 2020. So when we talk about coronavirus, perhaps some of our comments are slightly dated. But because the pandemic is still ongoing, a lot of it, I'm sure, is still highly relevant. And since we recorded this interview, Alan has changed jobs. So in this conversation, he references his old job at the Winton Centre for Risk and Evidence Communication. But as I mentioned, he now works as a producer on several podcasts, some of them for the BBC. I was particularly excited to hear that he's working as a producer on Exponential View. I've been a fan of the podcast for many years. It must have been five years ago when I was recommending episodes of Exponential View to my friends. So it was great to hear that Alan is connected to so many exciting projects. So without further delay, I bring you my conversation with Alan Goodman. Hello, I'm here today with Alan Goodman. Alan, thanks for coming on the show. It's a pleasure, Jeff. So I think we should start today with our mutual background. So I was very excited to discover that we'd actually studied the same thing, uh, which is history and philosophy of science, known as HBS, although I don't think it's known to anyone really outside of the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I studied at, I'm studying at the moment at uh, Utrecht University and you studied at UCL about three years ago. Mm. So I suppose my first question is, uh, how did you end up studying HBS? Like what factors really brought you to that master's? And when you got there, was it everything that you hoped it would be? Mm. My, my journey to, uh, to studying HBS was an unusual one. So I, I first studied uh, psychology and philosophy uh, as an undergraduate at Oxford. Um, so already, um, I guess, straight out of school, even though I'd never studied philosophy before, I, I'd never studied psychology before, uh, th- this kind of confluence of the philosophy and the science was exciting to me. And I, mm-hmm. I guess I didn't quite know why, but it felt like they were they were really exciting and important things to try and understand. There was just a curiosity there, I guess. So I studied psychology and philosophy there and a disposition kind of developed or an inclination towards philosophy that took the sciences very seriously. Mm-hmm. So um, philosophy, kind of a pure philosophy, what you might call pure philosophy or kind of, you know, conceptual analysis that's totally distinct from and separate from anything that's going on in the sciences and any empirical questions didn't seem fruitful to me and didn't seem exciting to me. Um, and so I, I culminated uh, my undergraduate degree writing and writing a dissertation about um, kind of in the philosophy of psychology, philosophy of mind, I guess. Um, but it was one very inspired by Paul and Patricia Churchland, who whose uh, agenda, as you know, is all about the, that you can't understand the mind without understanding the brain, that you have to, to look to neuroscience to understand some of the traditional philosophical questions um, about the mind. And, and that I found very exciting. That set me off on a, a certain sort of path. I, I, my life then, <laughs> I, 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 I then was sort of simultaneously developing uh passion and had been engaged in in acting for a long time so I was performing at a university and uh, there's uh, my father is an actor and everything so I then went to drama school for three years and um uh, and then to cut a long story short I spent 10 years as an actor (laughs) um yeah so that really is cutting a long story short but but that was that was the 
centre of my professional life for, for many years, even though I was I was doing other things as well in between and around, which kind of kept my other interests afloat. And, I, and for, for many years, I sort of had this appetite to go back and study um, and think about some of these big questions. And eventually I did. I, I went uh, to UCL, as you say, um, to study the history and philosophy of science. Um, yes. So there you are. That's that's my sort of unusual path. <laughs> it's a good one. It's very interesting. And I think I really I, I think our motivations align quite heavily. I mean, I really agree with everything you say about philosophy that takes science seriously. And I mean, my own hobby horse is kind of the hatred for, for armchair philosophy, which really doesn't bother to engage with anything empirical. Uh, so I really think it's so it's so essential. If philosophy is going to do anything valuable, it has to start with what we what we currently know from empirical science. And I think the Churchlands uh, have a great perspective on that. Hearing your conversation with Patricia on the the Nouse podcast was very mm. interesting. She was wonderful. She was very funny, actually. Um, you know, she's she's been around for years and she's not afraid to upset people. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, so, some, some of the stuff that she said um, that kind of, I guess, illustrates the idea we're talking about, that, that philosophy needs to take science seriously, um, is is that, that when you don't, when you just become a kind of... Uh, start making distinctions ever finer distinctions you become irrelevant um so she says what was one of the things she said um you know philosophers in certain sort of sub areas sub sub disciplines can just make ever finer distinctions but but none of the scientists take any notice because it doesn't matter and then the, the favorite thing my the favorite thing she said to me was um that you know if you go and go and look at the stanford encyclopedia the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy entry on epistemology, you will find, as she says, isms up the yin yang. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, just, just this sort of proliferating series of distinctions and different positions that you can occupy that, that, you know, from her point of view, don't matter. And they're not telling us really anything interesting and you can't do anything useful with them. Um, so uh, that's a, the spirit of that is something I definitely um, enjoy and uh, am inclined towards. And it's funny you say that because I think I both agree with Patricia so heavily in one way and also disagree with her heavily in other ways. And so one of my agreements is definitely the way that she thinks we should take science very seriously with philosophy. We should Philosophy should start to be proto-scientific and ask questions that future empirical science will hopefully answer once we have better tools to investigate consciousness and the mind and all these things for future science as I see them. But then I really think that philosophy has a very useful role in mapping out the intellectual battleground of all the positions the isms that she calls them so i understand her her frustration that philosophy does just generate endless isms up the yin yang uh, but i think at the same time philosophy does something quite useful in in setting out the different positions that are available and it, it forces you to think about your own position where you locate yourself in a debate and it forces you to kind of knit together all of your different positions in different debates and to come to an overall kind of program or a way of seeing the world uh, and I think that probably Patricia wouldn't have much time for that part of philosophy but I think that that can actually it can work hand in hand with the proto-scientific type of philosophy as if you really kind of knit together all of your different beliefs and have consistent isms I suppose kind of coherent isms about different positions on different aspects of the world. Sure so so the, the two two things you you pulled out there um, one is this, this this vision of philosophy as a kind of mapping exercise, 
mm-hmm. um, which um, interestingly, I just in preparation for having this conversation, I looked up an article that I wrote for the um, the American Philosophical Association blog when I first launched the podcast. Um, they they invited a, a series of you know people doing kind of philosophy podcasts to write these these articles, and I um, I recalled um, when I was at university as an undergraduate. Um, going to a talk by Sir Anthony Kenny, who is a very, very eminent philosopher. And he had, I, I think, recently finished this kind of monumental new history of Western philosophy. Okay, so so he's, you know, a very respected philosopher in his own right and a historian of philosophy. Um, and I thought, well, if anyone can answer this question, has, has philosophy made progress? Right, very vexed mm-hmm. question. Um, and so something that really bothered me, he should, he should be able to. He's just finished this history of philosophy. And his answer was that it has achieved a progressively finer articulation of the questions and of the potentially admissible answers. So it was very much like this kind of mapping vision of philosophy that it, that it sets out all of the different possible the questions and the different possible answers. And, and it's this kind of, uh, yeah, taxonomy almost, um, which is, is the, one of the visions that you, you are suggesting that you ascribe to. Mm-hmm. And um, I have to say, it seems rather dull to me <laughs> if that's the job. I mean, maybe it is useful um, and, and sort of mapping the terrain and understanding a kind of conceptual map of what's going on, I guess, is useful. It just sounds rather dull because, of course, we want to know the answers to things, right? We want, I mean, surely that's what it is. Well, for me, I can say that the the curiosity that drives me and the interest that drives me in these questions is not about mapping out what different people are saying and how they, how they might fit together. That's just part, that has just a sort of necessary part of the process of trying to get to grips with the different ways we could approach a question, the different ways we could answer a question. The real aim is to answer the question surely so so that's the first one and the second one it was was sort of consistency uh of of finding out you know or of investigating what did you know exploring theories that you do have and seeing how they work together and where they're inconsistent or consistent and i guess that's got to be part of finding the truth or, or and that's again a very vexed concept but um if, if you want to answer a question and you've got uh, a different set of observations and a kind of different related theories they've got to be consistent presumably um in, in order to be right so again it seems to me it's part of the process it's not the ultimate objective but um how does that sound to you <laughs> i i understand your frustration that mapping can be dull i just think it's it's part of the you know the procedure that we go through with philosophy and I, I definitely agree that answering the question, the I call it the substantive aim of philosophy. So the getting to the substance of the questions and the debates is definitely the most important thing. And for me, the substance of those debates are proto-scientific, so they have to take science seriously. Uh, but I think I think the mapping function is a bit, it's pretty indispensable. And I think it's it's just a way of of thinking. So I think when you when you approach something with a philosophical mindset. I mean, you can approach something with a historical mindset or a sociological mindset, but I think when you approach something with a philosophical mindset, you approach it with this kind of mapping outlook where you really think about the possible ways to answer a question, you know, on which alternatives to your own view exist and the weaknesses and the strengths of your position versus the others. And then it gives you a very kind of a clear map of when you when you come to give the substance of your, I don't know, debate or 
argument, you kind of have this clear overall map of, of what you're saying and how it fits into the overall picture. So, mm. but I do, I, I agree that I think that the, the substance of the question is the most important thing and we shouldn't, shouldn't get distracted from that, definitely. Mm-hmm. Am I allowed to ask you questions? Because there's, I, I would like to ask some things to you as well. <laughs> of course, yes, go ahead. Well, I'm, I'm interested um, that you're studying uh, history and philosophy of science. Um, to, to what extent are you studying kind of the science and technology studies angles, but by which I particularly mean the kind of um, the sociology of knowledge kind of angles, which uh, I, I noticed you, you, you referenced Bruno Latour in, in one of your uh, plans for the, um, uh, uh, one of your podcast episodes. So is, is that something you've been exploring? And how do you think that that fits in with your, with your understanding of the relationship between philosophy and science? Well, it kind of crops up from time to time. I haven't taken a specific class on the sociology of knowledge or anything, but it definitely comes up as a topic in general philosophy of science. So we, we looked at, you know, all the different viewpoints, scientific realism or social constructivism, and then social constructionism, which is Latour's slightly different uh, twist. Mm. Uh, and so I think it did make me definitely question the role of truth and the role of science and philosophy. And I was very surprised that maybe... I'd say three quarters of my class in the end, we kind of took a, a show of hands at the end, as you like mm. to do, uh, to see how people were kind of how it was sitting with people. And I think three quarters of the class were really quite convinced by the sociological constructive nature of knowledge, where they really started to doubt the, I don't know, the persistent mind independent nature of truth, if you want to say it that way. Mm-hmm. But I was in I was in the quarter that really clung on to the existence of this persistent reality. I think that it was hard for me to let go of it. I think that there are enough enough reasons to to think it it exists. And the way that informs my view of philosophy and science is, I think that science does have a privileged access to to a, a persistent mind independent truth. I mean, this is obviously the the point that the sociologists like to to uh, to doubt is that we can have any special privileged access to truth as it, as it exists because any kind of uh, construction or theory we make is so heavily influenced by our, our sociological cultural factors. But uh, I do think that there are several reasons why science can tap into uh, a reality outside of our minds. So we, for instance, the classifications of our senses uh, don't necessarily inform our scientific theories. There's an example from uh, one paper that we, we view glass as a liquid. And obviously that contradicts what our senses tell us. But that's the whole point. I mean, science can contradict our senses. We we can step outside of our naive sensory motor impressions of the world. And that's how we do extend our, our knowledge into mind-independent truths. And then also, obviously, technology gives us more ways to reconstruct the world. Uh, so the fact that the world can be reconstructed in different ways by different people can actually be on our side because we can use new technology to reconstruct the world again and again. So it's not that there is only one construction. I don't believe that. But because we have access to so many different constructions, we can actually arrive at useful conclusions about the world. Uh, so I think that because science has a special privileged access, uh, I do actually quite strongly believe in its uh, ability to latch onto truths about the world. And I think that philosophy does work quite closely hand in hand in that project. So philosophy asks the proto-scientific questions by extrapolating. Uh, and I think that philosophy just has a license to extrapolate a bit more wildly about things that might exist whereas 
there's, there's not a whole heap of distinction left for me between philosophy and science, except for the fact that philosophy is more about the the further reaching implications and the wilder extrapolations. It doesn't invo- directly involve itself with the, the data gathering, whereas science does say closer to the ground with the, the data gathering processes. And it whatever extrapolation it does do, it does trace a dotted line outwards towards certain implications. But when it does that, it has to be more measured and it has to refer more to to evidence and other kind of, you know, robust procedures. Mm. Uh, so that is my view of truth and science and philosophy. I'm, I'm curious if if you view <laughs> if you view science and philosophy as capable of latching onto these things or not. Well, I can tell you uh, by by strong inclination, I'm a realist as well. Um, mm. So I was always fond of Ian Hacking's uh, claim that if you can spray them, they're real. Um, and he was referring to electrons, right? So you can have something that sprays electrons as a sort of electron gun. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the point where you can spray them, they're real. It's just very down to earth. And you think once you can manipulate things and and um, you can develop technologies that depend on these theoretical constructs, it's such a level of, uh, such a degree of uh, sort of precision in terms of how we uh, predict and explain how they're going to behave and and then harness and use them in certain ways. Um, you've just got to believe that they're real. Like there's 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 yeah look, there's there's always space to to doubt. There's all there's always the possibility of systematic um, error and some kind of fundamental mess. But but that kind of radical skepticism is is unfruitful. It's unproductive, um, and it doesn't seem to to serve any purpose. Um, so yes, I, I strongly with you on the sort of scientific realism um, being disposed towards that. Where I would perhaps disagree is I, I think you were implying that you were implying quite a clear distinction between philosophy and science in that science deals with empirical uh, sort of data collection, evidence collection, and the philosophy somehow extrapolates beyond and develops theories further on the repercussions. Is, is is that a sort of fair assessment of your... Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't see a massive distinction or I don't see as big a distinction as certain other people think when they see philosophy as theorising only and science as, you know, empirical only. I do think that they both do a bit of both, but the distinctions to be found in the way that science deals more closely with the data gathering, philosophy deals more with the extrapolation end yeah i mean it's it's certainly um i guess the business of doing philosophy is more generally theoretical in in tone and in nature and broadly conceptual than the business of doing science is certainly Mm -hmm. that's that's a sort of descriptively true um but one of the interesting things i've always thought about philosophy of science is a major major component of the philosophy of science is understanding why science is so successful And so one of the things philosophy of science has to do is to try and understand what it is about the practice of science, whether there are even distinctive things. And increasingly, people tend to embrace kind of pluralisms where they say, well, there isn't actually anything really simple and unifying that you can say. But but anyway, one of the the tasks that a philosopher or scientist is engaging in is, is to understand how scientists actually work so it's a, it's a descriptive task first before it can be a normative task 
before it can say to be proper science, this is how you have to go about it, right? You have to first understand why science has already been so successful without, <laughs> without this, this, this um, you know, totally settled philosophical framework describing how it should, you know, how science ideally should um, go about finding the truth, whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. Um, does that make sense? So, so it's not that you do the science and then philosophy comes along and tries to extrapolate. It's that philosophy is trying to understand science itself. It's go, you know, science is really, really effective. Like we've, we've developed theories that have enabled us to build technologies, to fly planes, to send a, you know, uh, a rover to land on Mars. We've landed on a bloody comet. You know, how do Mm -hmm. we do all those things unless the things we've uncovered, the rules, the regularities, the tech, the, uh, understanding of gravity, of you know, electronics, of computing, whatever that that the, these things. How have we been able to make these discoveries? And 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 so the first job of philosophy of science for me is to is to pay attention to what has happened historically. And of course, that was the big revolution that Kuhn prompted was that he his understanding of how science operated was based on historical case studies. Whereas the logical positivists did a kind of rational reconstruction. They, they, they said, well, look, the context, they distinguished the context of discovery from the context of justification. So the context of the discovery is the sort of the sociological, historical particularities of the lab and people's ideas and how you, how you came up with a certain idea and what led you to do this. And, you know, your friend recommended this and there happened to be these ideas culturally at the moment and whatever. Um, but the context of justification is this kind of pure, rational arena where it's just about a kind of re- a relationship and a fit between theory and evidence uh, and and then Kuhn, Kuhn came along and said, look, that's just not how science has ever operated. And it's been successful despite that. And then he came up with this idea of paradigms and paradigm change, which undermines this idea totally that there is this kind of pure rational progression in science. And I was very excited by that. I, you know, I, I don't know exactly how to... Um, uh, to reconcile those apparent contradictions. Um, but I guess the, the, the point I'm trying to make is that the relationship between philosophy and science is not very easy and clear to make. And and they're, they're sort of intermingled with each other uh, in a more intimate and complex way that's rather difficult to disentangle. Yeah, I agree. And I think that the the kind of two ways you were describing there are a bit like two of the three functions of philosophy that I've talked about what listeners would be familiar with but the the three functions that as i see them one of them is is the mapping that we've talked about the the other is substantive so that's the proto-scientific aim of philosophy and then the the third role is the the kind of procedural way that philosophy of science specifically looks at the method of science so that i think that's really what you're describing there where philosophy looks at how science arrives at knowledge and of course it doesn't necessarily affect the progress of science if that if philosophy says it should be this way, but it isn't. Science kind of just barrels on nonetheless. It really isn't too fussed with what philosophy has to say about its uh, its work a lot of the time. Uh, but I, I do think that these issues about how scientific knowledge is, is produced or how we arrive at scientific knowledge, it's not necessarily a worry for science or scientists uh, themselves. I think it is 
the the job of the philosopher of science to take the the kind of the meta overarching kind of view to look at the the methods of knowledge creation i suppose uh so i think you're you're definitely right that philosophy of science are closely linked in that the the underground work of science happens at the same time as the above ground work of philosophy of science which kind of has this bird's eye view of the the methods of knowledge creation uh, and even though the scientists on the ground don't really care that much what we have to say about their work uh, i think that we do try and describe it accurately as it happens uh, and i think this actually uh, we should go back to talk a bit about your experience of hbs at, at uh, ucl because uh, it was interesting I, I was looking at the some of the options the classes that were offered and there were some differences i thought between my program and your program uh, and correct me if i'm wrong but it seems like your program is more focused on the kind of the general philosophy of science so this is the kind of the critique of science as a whole things like knowledge and explanation evidence modeling that uh, knowledge creation the things we're talking about uh, whereas my program has more what you call the philosophy of the specific sciences so i've taken lots of classes in philosophy of quantum mechanics or philosophy of ai so these kind of these classes that zoom in more closely on a specific scientific topic or field to look at those methods rather than the the kind of the general philosophy of science so i'm curious was that was that more your experience of doing this kind of general philosophy of science um yes it's true that i didn't i didn't have any real options to explore philosophy of particular sciences um one module that i did i did enjoy uh, was causality looking at causality in the sciences and taking a kind of philosophical approach to that so yes i, I guess you're right that that um b- because the the science and technology studies department in ucl is is quite small um and it combines people working in sociology of science with people working the history of science and on kind of questions in the philo- uh, philosophy of science um and in in science policy as well they don't they don't have many experts on specific sciences in the philosophy of specific sciences so yes it, a broader view a kind of thematic view that cuts across the sciences was more what i studied yeah Funny you mentioned causality. I feel like this is probably going to take us quite off the map, but uh I'd like to ask you about causality then since you've oh studied God. it. <laughs> I mean, it's the more you delve into it, the scarier it gets because it's very hard to actually pin down. So the kind of commonplace cause and effect relations that we perceive in the commonplace macroscopic world around us, uh like people and buses and things growing on trees, doesn't really seem to hold at other levels of reality. So I recently studied a lot of uh philosophy of quantum mechanics mm-hmm. and it's it's really it's quite crazy that there is almost no evidence of causality at that level mm-hmm. and the next point of that argument is that, that level is fundamental to every other level well if you want to see it as reducible in that way but mm-hmm. if if quantum mechanics and particles underlie all other levels of reality and there is no causality at the quantum level it appears that causality is some kind of a a heuristic or a psychological tool that our minds apply to the world but which don't ex- doesn't exist in reality out there uh, so i always thought that was uh, quite interesting and i'm wondering if you've had similar panic about the reality of causal relationships in the world <laughs> well i think if you do philosophy properly you you should be having these kind of panics periodically you know you should just 
you, you suddenly realise that things you absolutely take for granted can be picked apart. And indeed, there's someone out there who's done that, who's challenged assumptions that are very core to the way you've looked at the world before. But you, you stop getting... The panic stopped being quite so, um, I guess, world-shaking I mean, somehow because you sort of expect them a little more <laughs> after a while. <laughs> I'd be interested uh, to understand a little more from what you've been learning, how uh, quantum theory, can, in what way it sort of is a-causal. So this is something I've come across, but uh, would you be able to sort of flesh that out a little bit? Uh, it is quite it's quite a complex topic to uh, to quickly give an overview of. The main thing is that there are several different interpretations of quantum mechanics. So there's the many worlds interpretation and mm. there's nonlinear interpretations. Uh, and each of these has a different explanation for why quantum behavior is so weird. So weird aspects of quantum behavior are things like non-local non-locality. So the fact that things seem to be able to cause things which are at space-like separation. So things at greater distances than the speed of light can travel. The causation seems to run faster than the speed of light somehow. Uh, so there are all these ways of uh, of explaining why that might happen and people all have different theories. There seems to be no real deterministic, fully deterministic picture of quantum mechanics uh, that matches up with the macroscopic world. So, I mean, determinism in the, in the macroscopic world is as simple as, you know, kicking a ball and the ball moves or you boil a kettle and the water gets hotter. Uh, or the the molecules are excited in a certain way, and that's there's an asymmetrical relationship in the in the the way the time runs that the, these things happen mm-hmm. in one direction only. It, it really seems like at the quantum mechanical level, uh, that kind of macroscopic determinism doesn't seem to to hold, and it's a, it's a very deeply philosophical question whether that should have any bearing in how we view the world. I mean, should that should that upset anything about how you go about? Uh, your commute to work or should it just be something that you just pack away in your brain and not worry about Uh, but it seems to point to the fact that the everyday causality that we apply to the world isn't necessarily evidenced uh, in our current scientific theories of of particles Mm, okay is it that um, the kinds of causal relationships that we tend to assume in our everyday lives or that we um, we use to understand medium-sized objects in the world around us presume determinism, and the quantum mm-hmm. world doesn't doesn't appear to be deterministic. Is that an, is that one of the ideas? Yeah, that's definitely that's definitely one strong interpretation at the moment. So it's not deterministic, but it's probabilistic. Yeah, there's one there's one view where that says it's stochastic. So it's not that mm. one thing. It's and there's there's a distinction here between kind of uh, I'm not sure this is even the correct way of seeing it but I I often just use two different words to like probabilistic and stochastic I mean they're interchangeable but if you if you see them separately for one moment you can view certain theories as probabilistic in that they describe the probability of our being aware of certain things happening or you can look at the actual ontology of the thing itself as being stochastic and that the ontology of the of the relationship itself is not deterministic in that the particle itself doesn't know what it's going to do one minute to the next. It only does certain things with a certain degree of probability, whether it's, well, it's usually 50%, it's usually 50-50 or 25-75, the way the the quantum probabilities work out. Uh, So you can look at at the probabilistic nature of our theories about how we apply our knowledge of quantum mechanics being 
uh, it being based on probabilities of things happening. Or you can go a, a level deeper and look at the, the nature of the things themselves to be stochastic and that the things themselves aren't deterministically led from one state to the next, but rather, you know, pop from one state to the next with a certain degree of probability or not. Mm. And, that's, and that's, a, that's a very unsettling way to see reality in that if, if reality itself is fundamentally stochastic, if, if balls kicking feet don't 100% necessarily cause the football to move, uh, that seems to be definitely something that offends our, our commonplace um, perceptions. Yes. So, so whether the probabilistic nature of quantum phenomena is, um, the apparently probabilistic nature of quantum phenomena is a property of our ignorance, or whether mm -hmm. it's a property of the phenomena themselves, is, exactly. is the question, isn't it? Yeah. We're quite off the map here. I think maybe we should uh, venture back into uh, more familiar territory. So I think both of us studying HPS, we think a lot about uh, communicating scientific and philosophical knowledge, because I think for me, for my course, at least, that's a, a theme that comes back quite often that it's not just, you know, how we arrive at scientific knowledge, but also you know how we communicate scientific knowledge uh, usefully to the public, because there is this unavoidable fact that certain scientific knowledge is just unavoidably specialised. So things like particle physics or medical research that I have no hope of understanding. So when it comes to communicating scientific and philosophical ideas to the public, uh, you have to kind of communicate the core ideas that are useful to know or useful to apply to people's lives. And at the same time, communicate things like you're not going to have a have a have a full access to the depth of knowledge that exists without the right study. So you do have to just, you know, trust the experts to a certain degree. Uh, and I think that maybe you've had an experience of this yourself with your podcast. I mean, you you are engaged now in a in a practical position of communicating philosophical ideas. Uh, so I'm wondering how all these things have come together for you. Have you, do you think a lot about the, the task of communicating and has that, has your view of that task changed now that you have your own podcast? So I'm going to be totally honest with you and tell you the reason I started my podcast wasn't because I, I thought the world needed to hear these ideas. That's not what, that's not what motivated me. Um, what motivated me was a kind of curiosity and delight in discovering about these things. And and I think that's probably the right way around. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know how useful or important these things are. Some of them are very important, actually, to, to be honest. So some of the topics on my podcast are very practical um, and very important. You know, they're, they're like uh, mental health questions or psychiatry. Um, so I've interviewed um you know, different people like uh, Lucy Johnston, who's a clinical psychologist, and I've interviewed uh, Kevin Mitchell, who is a, a neurobiologist, or who, and both of them talking about um, schizophrenia and depression, for example, from from different disciplinary perspectives. So there are some ideas that really matter. Um, there are others that are more uh, speculative, of more academic interest, of more, you know, I've also interviewed a philosopher called Keith Frankish, another philosopher called Philip Goff, uh, on his panpsychist theory of consciousness, and Keith mm -hmm. Frankish has an illusionist theory of consciousness. Now, now these things seek to underpin our normal experience of consciousness. So, so they don't, they don't seek to change anything in a sense. They seek to just explain what's already the case. Um, and they're fascinating and strange theories. Um, but in a sense, they don't matter because if one or the other was true, it kind of wouldn't change anything 
for me, the the driver of making the podcast is a kind of curiosity and a kind of pleasure and the, the thrill of being able to speak to these really brilliant, you know, leading experts and sort of public figures um, working on these things. Um, and I guess wanting to share that, but it's it's not because I felt some urge to kind of, you know, oh, it was me, people must know about these things. I, I just wanted perhaps to, to share... I guess the, the part of the aim of communication is also just sharing the pleasure of, of learning and thinking about something that's that's fascinating and strange. Um, so that's that was kind of the, one of the overriding uh, things that led me to 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 create the podcast. Funnily enough, in my day job, I I actually I work for an organisation called the Winton Centre for Risk and Evidence Communication at the University of Cambridge. So the, you know the podcast is something I do in my spare time. Um, it's not something that earns me an income. Um, so the my, my day job very much is about risk and evidence communication. Um, and that has all sorts of much more obvious um, everyday relevance and importance. Um, so we work across a number of different kind of disciplinary areas. But one of the most obvious is in medicine. Um, so if you think about patients being able to make decisions about treatments you know they need to have a very clear understanding uh, medical practitioners are legally obliged now in this country to communicate risks and benefits okay mm-hmm. um which which to a certain extent involves um communicating what the evidence says about a particular treatment but you can imagine if you're sitting in a gp surgery you know, you, you might not be interested or or even necessarily capable of digesting huge amounts of scientific information and you haven't got time and you're not interested. You want to know very simply, but relevantly and also accurately, you know, what the latest research says about a particular treatment. And so we, we work at sort of projects that are about that interface um, where people are communicating uh, evidence and about risk about risks and benefits to other people who need to make a decision so we try and find ways of supporting people to do that communication um, in a way that's efficient and accessible um, but also accurate um, but but that's sort of fairly obvious I don't think that we need to, uh, there needs to be a lot said about that in terms of uh, you know the the importance of scientific communication in, in that uh, arena I would say mm-hmm. That's fascinating. And it's it's great to hear that there are such practical applications of communication where you really are uh, bringing useful information into a patient's life, hopefully, is the goal. Mm. Uh, and I certainly agree that some of the more philosophical topics don't necessarily have that same practical import into our lives at all. Uh, even questions of causality or even scientific knowledge. I mean, the, the answers to these questions don't necessarily change how we live our lives. But I think we'll, we'll agree that they're still nice to talk about in the meantime. Exactly, yeah. And uh, I'm curious as well about your your, just your view of podcasting in general. Uh, it's uh, I know you say it's just something that you, you like to do on the side, uh, but you think that it has become an important way to, to, uh, to share ideas because it seems like that they're so popular these days. I'm curious if, if you think that it's really changed the way that we, uh, that our scientific or intellectual discourse is taking place. I mean, I think as a medium... It has enabled um, a kind of sophisticated, in-depth form of conversation and communication to become much more easily accessible. Um, and the reason for that is that you're 
um, you, you can much more easily create work for niche audiences without the pressure of making money. Um, so um, you can create stuff about, you know, top, on topics you're interested in. Um, and because you can now reach a global audience, you can find small groups of people who are interested in the similar things to you who will listen and enjoy um and and also there's no sort of time constraints you know you your episodes can be as long as you want or as short as you want this is totally different from radio and from tv there just isn't the cost and the pressure to reach uh, a cross-section you know of an audience of a population in the same way that there is on these mass media channels um, so, and I do think that probably has made a cultural impact somehow. It's, 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 you know, this, this, this new, it's a new form which reaches people in different ways and people consume in different ways. Um, I mean, again, that's changing all the time. Um, it's, it's constantly changing. So it, you know, the arena of podcasting is being professionalized and commercialized more and more. Just the other day, it was announced that the Joe Rogan podcast has been uh, sort of purchased by Spotify. Oh, wow. So they will, at some point, uh, exclusively host the Joe Rogan podcast. So it won't be available on any other platform. And so, you know, these things are happening and, and it may start to become the, the, the situation will evolve, you know, constantly. Um, but for a long time, we have had. Uh, you know, I don't know, Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson and God knows, all, all of these people who have extended conversations with fascinating people. Um, and that, that proliferation is enabled by the cheapness of the medium, basically. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there, really, with the, the long form nature of podcasts. It really seems like people do explore these long and complex topics that wouldn't be possible with regular radio. Mm. Uh, but I'm also I'm curious I've I've only recently started to be worried about well not be worried but started to maybe view a certain trend towards podcasts and necessarily away from other things like academic books or popular books mm. uh, th my own experience of starting a podcast was really how time consuming it was mm. I think that interviewing people is certainly time consuming for preparation and background research but I think that preparing kind of solo episodes like I've done so far uh, it really I ended up writing almost like a, a chapter of a book every episode was kind of this standalone chapter and I, I tried to link the episodes together in a way that they flowed into one another and I kind of I dropped little um, teasers for future episodes of topics that I would be covering so it ended up effectively I ended up kind of writing a book with just like a few chapters that linked together and uh, I had this moment where I kind of thought have I just done all of the work of writing a short book and then I'm just going to put it out on a podcast but it seemed to me like it was the best way, the best way that I could really get my ideas out and to get a reaction from people and to, to really have a, a conversation. People might listen and then hopefully join me for a conversation on the podcast in the future. So but I started to see maybe this it's as a kind of a trend towards podcasting away from books, because it seems like it almost it's replaced uh, one certain kind of type of intellectual discourse. Uh, I'm curious if you've if you've thought about this at all. I, I'm always wary of what you might call grumpy old man syndrome, where you see the way things are changing and you think the way things were before was better. Um, because I think we're all inclined to it. Uh, you, I think you're probably right. People might listen to podcasts now where previously they, they might be, might have been more likely to read books. Maybe that's true. Um, is it bad? I don't know. I don't know if that's bad. I mean, 
perhaps the way people attend to arguments or understand information changes and perhaps it becomes, I don't know, less intensive. It may also be that actually the whole kind of podcasting goes absolutely hand in hand with a kind of writing blogs and reflecting on arguments and breaking things down and analysing things in a way that's published online in, in articles and so that it's just it's just a new form of, of thinking and digesting information and learning new things. It's not necessarily worse. Um, so I'm I'm not troubled. I'm not troubled by it, I would say. Um, or at least I, I haven't seen any evidence that, that suggests to me I should be troubled by that. I would. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's true. I mean, if if there's a problem, I'm definitely part of it because I love podcasts and I listen to, you know, countless hours every week. And some of them are incredibly uh, well put together and incredibly uh, deep in their kind of in the topics they cover. Uh, but it's just it's just an interesting, interesting thing that came to my mind that it seems to be a way that intellectual life is changing uh, somehow. I know this is probably a question you might be asked already, but it seems like we're now in a, a time where with the coronavirus uh, crisis that we do have a, a, a new challenge of communicating medical information to patients and to the general public. This is kind of a, a very broad question with many sub questions, but what's your overall impression of, you know, the challenges that we're now facing with communicating this information? And, you know, do you think that that these challenges are different in 2020 than they were 10 years ago before social media? Do you think that the dynamics between communicators of science and the public is changing uh, or how do you how do you view the the whole coronavirus communication crisis uh, from <laughs> a, a position within the field, I suppose? My boss, or one of my bosses, is actually uh, Professor David Spiegelhalter, who has um, become, he's a statistician by trade, and he's a professor of risk, in fact. And so he, and he's become a kind of, um, I mean, he was always a, a public figure, he's always done a lot of broadcast and um, about risk, but, but he's become sort of even more um, high profile, I guess recently um he's he's often on you know on the radio and on the telly talking about the just just breaking down the latest numbers that have been published um on what's happening in the UK with deaths in particular and tests and positive tests and all that but you're asking me about the, what, what what's what are the challenges i mean the challenges are the same as they ever were you know i'm on twitter a lot and i do think that social media the the greater transparency uh, it affords is a double-edged sword. Um, and I keep thinking this about the way the government has ostensibly made very impressive... So I'm talking about the UK government here. You might mm-hmm. have an international audience. Uh, uh, the, the UK government has made pretty impressive um, steps towards being transparent. They started holding a daily press conference um, where they would report the numbers of deaths, the numbers of positive tests that they'd done, test, you know, uh, newly diagnosed uh, cases of COVID-19. You know, this, this is a pretty impressive exercise. And they had the chief uh, scientific advisor and the chief medical advisor who were helming those press conferences, at least at the beginning. So, so it's been one of the mantras of, of the, the pandemic that we're following the science, we're following the science. And this was very sort of well received at the beginning. Um, you know, they, and they really did seem to be doing that. They put, putting the, the chief scientific advisor on the stand in front of the press, saying, "Look, this is what we think is happening. This is our analysis." And then, and then, all sorts of things have emerged about, you know, 
the model, the mathematical model that was that was very influential. It's essentially the, the this attempt to be very transparent has just led to demands for more transparency. Mm-hmm. It's it's allowed for um, flaws to be uncovered, and that's probably a good thing. But but sometimes it, it's become now very toxic, actually. So it's it's the the challenge of the communication during in this crisis is both how how do you how are you transparent and honest and clear and i'm thinking particularly from the government's point of view without losing trust and of course if you're if you're doing a bad job then you will lose trust and that should be the case but what worries me is that i think I, i've seen examples where maybe people shouldn't have lost trust um but they have and i and i don't know so that so the challenge is 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 honest accurate communication which which doesn't get subsumed by sort of politicized misinformation distortion which is so possible now on on social media mm-hmm. um there you are that's one of the big challenges there yeah well that's fascinating and great to get an insight from someone working so closely in the field at the moment uh, and thanks just in general for for joining me for this conversation it's been great i think we uh we have some similar backgrounds and similar interests and i think we have some some overlaps in the way that we view the the role of science i think so it was nice to to find some agreement where where it could be found Uh, so thanks for your time and uh best of luck with all of your work uh going forward a pleasure jeff thank you and uh good luck extrapolator is produced and edited by me jeff allen There's no team behind the podcast, it's just me, and I really appreciate the ongoing support from listeners. It's been wonderful to see the listenership steadily growing, and to connect with some of you on social media. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe, and please take 30 seconds to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. It really helps the podcast to grow. You can also follow me on social media, on Facebook and on Instagram, at extrapolatorpod. The artwork for Extrapolator was created by Hugh Allen. The music was written and recorded by me, and it's available on Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, and all major directories. Just search for Extrapolator, original podcast soundtrack. As always, thanks for listening, and until next time.